0: This podcast was developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Now, we hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: On Rare, an exclusive podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. Behind each unique condition is a unique story. And at On Rare, we have the privilege to listen and learn from the true experts, people living with the rarest conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team at Bridge Bio. Thanks for joining me. Today, David and I are so honored to be joined by John and Tony. Two men who live with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2I or LGMD 2I. But before we hear from John and Tony, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy at Bridge Bio, will talk with Dr. Doug Spruill. David?
2: Thank you, Mandy. I'm really looking forward to hearing from John and Tony. But before we do, I'd like to introduce you to Chief Medical Officer at ML Bio Solutions, Doug Spruill. He's also a pediatric neurologist and a board certified neuromuscular specialist. Doug, I'm going to ask you to explain to us uh, what is limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2I? How do people develop it? And what happens to someone who has this condition over the course of their lifespan?
3: Uh, Thank you, David. It's, I think, a good place to start at the framework of what is muscular dystrophy. Um, Muscular dystrophy is a condition where there's some sort of instability of the muscle membrane. That's the surface of the muscle cells. Every time those muscles contract, there's a a constant injury to the muscle cell that is occurring. When that happens, there's a period of time where the muscles are able to regenerate sufficiently and able to fix themselves, Uh, but ultimately they aren't able to keep up with the constant injury and destruction that occurs. And so over time, there's a loss of muscle mass There's destruction of the muscle and replacement with fatty tissues. Uh, And ultimately, that leads to first weakness, and then ultimately, the inability to do basic tasks, standing, walking, climbing stairs, the ability uh, to move your arms uh, effectively, and in some situations, the inability to effectively breathe. There are many different causes of muscular dystrophy. Um, One of the common ways is in what's called the limb girdle pattern of weakness. What typically occurs is that there's an early development of subtle weakness, first in the thighs and the butt muscles, uh, then ultimately in the shoulder muscles, and then much later in the hands and feet. And so because the predominant weakness occurs in the upper part of the limbs and the chest, it's called limb girdle weakness. For many patients until relatively recently, we're talking the last five years, they would be commonly labeled as having just limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And so it's very common to see on a chart LGMD-NOS, meaning not otherwise specified. And that was a diagnosis that patients would carry uh, without any real understanding of what the specific cause was uh, and whether there was any prospect of ultimately developing effective treatment for the disease. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And so these are diseases that while they initially uh, present with very subtle symptoms that are often overlooked, um, they're marked by severe impact on patients' lives and those of their families. A few years ago, uh, there was a move to take advantage of genetic testing and panel testing for limb girdle muscular dystrophies became widely used and available. That's really only occurred in the last five to seven years, but it's transformed how we think about these diseases. It's no longer considered acceptable to leave a patient with a diagnosis of LGMD. Now in the modern era, it's expected that you will take the next step and perform genetic testing to identify the specific mutation and form of limb-girdle muscular dystrophy that a given patient may have. And that's really important because there are some forms of limb-girdle muscular dystrophy that are burdened by the additional aspect of what's called cardiomyopathy or heart disease, where the heart muscle is also affected and ultimately will lead to failure. And so it's critical that if a patient does have a form of muscular dystrophy where that is a specific concern, that you provide rigorous and comprehensive cardiology care to those patients as well. With the identification of specific diagnoses provides the opportunity for patients to be involved in clinical research for their specific forms of muscular dystrophy. What is LGMD2I? The two is autosomal recessive inheritance. And what that means is you need to have one bad copy of the gene from each parent to lead to the development of disease. The I is just a function of the fact that as they identified autosomal recessive causes, they labeled them using the letters of the alphabet in order. A, B, C. LGMD2I is also a disease that affects the heart. Um, Some patients may require medication or potentially other, other interventions. So it's A disease that presents slowly over time, but it's one that's marked by a lot of disability. And patients that have this disease, uh, it's a life-altering diagnosis uh, and one that is in dire need uh, of having effective options to help address and, and improve the symptoms and impact of the disease.
2: Thank you, Doug. That was such an understandable description of what is really a pretty complex lifelong condition and one that starts out as perhaps not affecting the individual so much that it seems like it's serious. But after living a number of years with LG MD2I, it can result in very difficult situations like heart conditions and difficulty breathing. So it's a reminder of the urgency of our work to help to create medicines for conditions like 2I. I just have one follow-up question. Uh, I wonder if the advent of genetic diagnosis is going to help the development of treatment for the various forms of limb-girdle muscular dystrophy. Will that be a help to researchers who are looking to provide treatments to this community?
3: Thank you. The, The development of genetic testing for LGMD has revolutionized the field. Uh, and has created a tremendous opportunity for patients affected by all types of LGMD to not only understand their specific diagnosis, but also to allow researchers to directly explore and research therapeutic options for these diseases. It presents the medical community an amazing opportunity to treat and address specific forms of LGMD. So I can't overstate how transformative uh, molecular genetic testing is for this disease and all other forms of LGMD.
2: Thank you, Doug. What a wonderful background and very helpful to us.
3: Thank you. It's, uh, it's praise from Caesar.
2: I'm really pleased to introduce John and Tony. They both graciously agreed to talk to us today about living with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i which uh, you'll hear us refer to mostly as 2i. Welcome, John. Can you tell us where you live and how old you are?
4: I am 44 years old, and I live in the state of Utah right now.
2: How about you, Tony?
0: I am 38, and I'm in Los Angeles.
2: I guess where I would like to begin is to ask each of you to briefly tell us the story about how you learned that you have 2i and what was the process to get to a clear diagnosis? Let me ask you to start, John, if you would.
4: Great, sounds good. To be honest with you, I always knew something was off. I have a number of siblings, We've always lived in rural settings in Colorado and Utah. We always lived outside, worked outside, and were involved in a lot of physical activities. And I enjoyed doing all those activities. And as much as I loved being with everybody and doing all the things, I always sensed that I was unable to do the things I wanted to, to keep up, to be as fast as them, to be as strong as them. Teenage years came around and it really starts to magnify itself, especially when when you want to continue playing sports and do those activities with your friends and to be honest with you I don't think anybody else could have detected it if they were observing me it it was just kind of this internal thing I knew that I wasn't as strong I wasn't as fast I didn't have that endurance to kind of push things to that level of really being competitive Um, that said I was really physically active growing up as I got into my early 20s, I have a sister who's probably six or seven years older than me. and all, I have uh, four sisters who have been diagnosed with 2i as well. But that's more recent, right? So if we go back to our 20s, we started having these conversations about the inability to do certain things. This is so hard. Why is this hard? I can't go up these stairs anymore. I can't do this thing. I can't lift my child anymore. And so because my sister, I think, was you know six or seven years my senior and probably more advanced, she went in and started meeting with doctors and specialists trying to understand really what was happening um she received a diagnosis of muscular dystrophy but they could not give her a subtype and i was about 22 at the time and so i knew instantly when she had that diagnosis that it applied to me as well you know the next 15 16 years I just knew I had LGMD, but I did not know the subtype. And it wasn't until 2018 that I did a DNA test and and determined my subtype.
2: So, John, you could tell that there was something different about you, but you didn't think it was noticeable to anyone. What were the kind of things that you noticed within yourself that made you think, okay, I'm doing these things, but I'm not doing them the same way or as well as the people I'm with?
4: Yeah, I mean, I could cite a couple examples there. And again, people make comments. I remember in elementary and junior high, sometimes kids would call me clumsy, right? Out playing on the playground and maybe I would fall in a scenario where we're playing tag. That was my least favorite game because I was always it. I could never catch the other kids. And so I was the slow kid, right? So here I am physically appearing to be like everybody else, but unable to keep up with things like that. In high school, I played football. I went to a small high school, and um, I was able to be a part of the team. I didn't fall behind too much. When we ran the laps, I wasn't with the fast kids, and I wasn't performing at the level where where I wanted to. A lot of kids I hung out with in high school were weightlifters, and we spent a couple of years in the weight room. And that that's when I realized my muscles were not behaving like other boys my age. And that's when I knew something was not right with my muscles. So,
2: um, Tony, I, before we go on, and I, we want to hear your story as well, but do you have any questions for John about the experience he's just describing?
0: I mean, it's just, it's like mirror image, like it was such a similar journey a main difference is I have two brothers that are half brothers. I have a biological father that I do not know. So I was the only sibling that had anything like this. You know, I'm sure it's it's been in some ways a blessing and a curse to have like family at your like, OK, we understand we, we share the same genes. So to make it easier or harder, what's the process been like for you guys?
4: Fortunately, I would say we really started to ask the questions and have the conversations in our 20s. We can look back and we can relate some of these early childhood experiences, but, but they weren't really remarkable. We didn't talk about them because they weren't really abnormal. Mm-hmm. But now here we are in our 40s and 50s and, and we're having these conversations and, and we can relate to each other, right? Mm -hmm. and we're we're so close Um, we understand each other we get the things we're all accommodating to each other and we all are able to to just kind of know what the other one is dealing with so
2: how about you tony what was the first thing that you experienced that was possibly related to having lgmd2i
0: um, you know, being a kid where in my head in gym class, I'm Magic Johnson, and I'm just so full of energy and like contributing and, and having fun with other kids. And it started to show that the results didn't match the effort. You know, I, I played hockey. And again, like in, in my head, like i feel like I can figure out how to be Wayne Gretzky, but it's just physically not happening. And then I started skateboarding, snowboarding, just doing all these, you know, parents' worst nightmare type activities and just getting hurt all the time, not being able to keep up with other kids. So that was, you know, my elementary and middle school experience. But going as far back as I can remember, like You know, I was a kid with a single mom uh, living with my grandmother in like outside of inner city Cleveland. And I remember my when I started school, I guess probably kindergarten, first grade, getting on the school bus. I remember my grandma telling my mom, something doesn't look right. You know, he's struggling to climb the slide at the park when we take him. He can't get on the school bus like normal kids. And my mom is just like, you're paranoid. It's your only grandson. Like, chill. So that was the earliest inclination that anything was off and really echoes a lot of what John said for sure. Um, but when you have no, no one else in your family to look at, I don't envy the fact that obviously like your family has this disease affecting so many people in it. But like I was and remain kind of on an island of like, like how did this very specifically happen to me? Um, and of course, science explains why it did. But eventually you get sick of struggling to keep up even when it's like a minor thing in your life. And I just pivoted to junior high. I started playing music because that didn't require any physical activity for the most part. So probably from my teenage years to my early 20s, I just went to school, played music with my friends and never really gave it much thought. I do remember like senior year of high school deciding to go for a run with my friends on the soccer team and that was the first time outside of like gym class like where they we just go and i'm like guys what's going on like you're so far ahead of me and yeah they're kind of like and i've always been you know like a thin i guess like appearing to be healthy dude so they were confused as well and then you know My my early 20s were just playing music and going to college and knowing something didn't feel right. But it's like the check engine light on your car when you're that age, you ignore it until you literally can't anymore. And for me, that was John mentioned this as well, just stairs like the fact that like I realized I would watch other people, you know, friends, people on TV and be like, how do you walk up the stairs without using the railing? I never realized that was physically possible to do because I'd always had to use a railing. And as that became more challenging, traveling a lot and, and playing music, uh, when I started having the struggles of carrying the equipment, going upstairs, loading in, that's when I realized like something is definitely different. It took some time to get anything resembling a diagnosis for sure.
4: Yeah, I can relate to that. Um different, right? Like just looking at other people and how do they do that so easily? And like you're saying, I really liked your analogy about the engine light. It's like, but I'm still running and I'm, I'm still moving. I'm still doing these things and I can figure out other ways to do them and keep up. I, I like some of those comments. And again, the, the parallels are interesting.
2: Thank you, John. We heard from John that he might have 2 eye after his sister was diagnosed. Tony, how after all of this time, you brought us all the way through high school, I think. The engine light was coming on, but you still didn't know why. How did you learn that you had 2 eye?
0: You know, I spent the early 20s traveling and touring and playing music. I didn't start college until I was 22. So I, I went to Kent State in Northeast Ohio. You know, I would notice because like college campuses, Lord, looking back, are the least accessible on the planet for one. So like I, I still noticed the things that would only pop up when I was doing things like loading gear up a flight of stairs. I started noticing little things every day. And I think, I, you know, I got to the point by my mid 20s where it was just like, OK, I'm going to go to the doctor for this. That's when things got really interesting, for sure, because the first line of defense was my family physician who had me try on a knee brace to see if that helped it did not help so then i was referred to a neurologist at a hospital in ravenna ohio where the doctor's like you have als like basically wrote my death certificate on site at 26 years old and then he ran those proper tests said actually maybe you don't but i don't know what this is so i'm going to refer you to the cleveland clinic which is of course a world-renowned amazing medical facility And it was a little bit of back and forth, a lot of, you know, shocking of the nerves to make sure those worked. A lot of, I'm sure the same test John probably went through at points where they, you know, stick electric things in your muscles. And it's like the most invasive, terrible feeling (laughs) you can imagine. Um, Same result as John. It was basically, we think you have LGMD. To get it more specific than that, it would cost tens of thousands of dollars that your insurance will not cover. What do you want to do? So at 26... It was just like, okay, like, I don't think I want to do anything. They told me to be careful, be conservative with my activity, uh, you know, rest is best. And I moved to New York City for the summer, which is the total opposite of what I was probably supposed to do um, and, you know, beat the heck out of myself physically, had a great time. Um don't regret it for a second. And it just kind of stayed how it was for probably three years. I yeah, I moved to Los Angeles and, you know, I was really, really active and so thankful. Like I knew in the back of my mind, I knew enough about LGMD to think like, take advantage of this because basically everything that has happened could happen. So I'm glad in the moment I realized like, yeah, stay out till 2 a.m. in Hollywood because you can do it now. Um, you're not going to be able to do it in a few years. But I started to fall. I walked a lot. I was taking public transportation, uh, working like in the the thick of Hollywood and just like we'd go out for lunch at work. I would fall. Things started happening like that. And we're still not to the two eye diagnosis yet. Mind you, (laughs) I found a neurologist in Beverly Hills who was supposed to be the best muscular dystrophy neurologist in Southern California. So I really liked those odds. And he said, I don't think you have limb girdle muscular dystrophy. You know, you're, you're almost 30, you're way too healthy in quote signs. And he diagnosed me with something called polymyositis, which I would later learn is a very common misdiagnosis for LGMD and two i specifically. He put me on prednisone for a year and a half. Uh, it was hell. Uh, It did improve my strength and stability a little bit, but the trade-off was I felt like my brain and insides were on fire. Uh, And then eventually when I started to feel those improvements decline, I spent 15 minutes Googling. I found the Jane Foundation. I did probably the same DNA test John did. Uh, You spit in a cup and boom, two months later, I found out I had this very specific form of, of LGMD. So that's that's how we got here, pretty much, and that was about five years ago.
2: Tony, you had a long journey to get a diagnosis, and along the way, you received other diagnoses. At least one of which has got to be really frightening. That is being ALS. Yeah. Generally speaking, a fatal disease, and treated for a different condition, also that you didn't have. That's, yes. Yeah. And this went on for years.
0: Yeah. It was only five years in total, but it feels like decades. The fact my brain and body went through that over the course of, you know, a very small percentage of most people's lives is looking back pretty wild for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's a term that is used in rare disease called the diagnostic journey, and that's definitely what you experienced. I'm guessing you hadn't known about LGMD2I or the specific types of limb girdle muscular dystrophy. When you received the diagnosis, like, what was your reaction?
0: I think I kind of just said, okay, kind of one of those, oh, that's what it's called. There's a specific gentleman that kind of gives you the news. And I think John will know who I'm talking about, a great guy. But he gave me the the news, was just very blunt, like, there's nothing you can do at this point. He's like, there might be in the future, but right now, like, the disease is going to win. So you just need to figure out what that means for you and like, you know, how you deal with that. And that was, I think that was the conversation where it's was just like, oh man, I just met this guy, but I'm so mad. And I just want him to be extremely wrong. Unfortunately, he's been, he was pretty spot on with how it would go. Um, yeah. I think that was the hardest thing was like, not so much seeing the diagnosis, but hearing like, this is it. There's not much you can do. Just, you know, it almost went back to that original Cleveland Clinic sort of diagnosis where they're just like, I don't know, just be careful and ride the wave because who knows
4: how bad this could get.
2: Uh, John, do you want to ask uh, Tony any questions or then comment on your own experience here?
4: Oh boy. Um, No specific questions. I think just because I relate to it so well. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Like the parallels are uncanny. And I mean, I guess I could find one difference there because my sister was ahead of me. She was my guinea pig. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was 22 when LGMD was a term that we learned. And so all the research of all the subtypes, I knew there was nothing that could be done. Right. And every couple of years I would check in and make sure there was nothing happening on the horizon where something was coming our way that could help us. And, And the falls... You know, just falling here, falling there, falling here, falling there. It became common, but I could always push myself back up, climb up somehow, right? And so 18 years later at 40, my wife went to a uh, MDA conference in Salt Lake. I was busy that day. And so she came home and the the key takeaway was you need to know your subtype. If you have LGMD, it's easy to get your subtype now. All you have to do is spit in this vial and send it in, which I did we got the document in the mail and we read it and it said FKRP mutation, LGMD 2 i And that was it, right? Like I wasn't mad. I knew what I had had for 18 years. If anything, it was like, now I know what to research, right? Now I can actually hone in my search terms, find people who are talking about 2 i and working on 2 i And if anything, it was a relief to know the mutation and to know what I was dealing with. If anything, I had that 18 years to work through all those things to know what my ultimate prognosis was, to know that I don't want to live with regrets. I'm going to do all the things that I can now and I'm going to enjoy everything. And when we get to that point where maybe something can be done about it, we'll start working on that. But that's that's kind of what, what my journey was and maybe how it varied a little bit.
2: Interesting to live with a condition, you know, this sort of basic, but not the specifics. In Tony's case, you were given a quote of a lot of money that it would cost to find out the subtype and it didn't seem worthwhile if there were no treatments. And then, you know, after so long, finally getting the answer. John, did your wife say why she thought you should get the subtype testing? She heard something at the conference that convinced her and then convinced you.
4: She met with one of the neurologists, at the University of Utah, and basically he told her that things have come a long way in 15 years, and really knowing your subtype will help you determine how you move forward because things are on the horizon, and you need to get in line, and you need to figure out what they are and, and work with those groups because big things are happening and big things are coming, and so that that was hope, right, and that hope is what caused me to act because that was new. Yeah, great. You know,
2: it's interesting. I'd like to hear more about what it's been like for each of you living with 2i, but you've already talked about these earlier chapters where you were living with 2i for a long time without truly knowing what was going on with you. We're interested in knowing what it's like living with 2i, so let me just put that out there and see what that brings up for you.
0: Do you want me to start? You've started. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be another one where, where John can relate to quite a bit of this. It can be really isolating. You know, I'm thankful to have an amazing wife. Uh, I don't have any kids to try to chase around. I, I can't imagine how challenging that is for sure. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful. My wife, she's certainly not patient, but she helps me figure out a lot. You know, it's it's the loss of independence. That's the most frustrating thing for me. As an adult, when you think back on like something like Christmases of past and like memories, as you get older, everything's just taken away. And with a debilitating disease like this there's just certain movements, actions, day-to-day things that like you can feel them slipping away. And you're like, no, not this. Like, just let, let me keep being able to do this. And it can be really, really challenging to say the least to realize that's happening to you as it's happening, if that makes sense. And, and maybe that's something John can relate to. Um, and really it's just like a lot of us, you know, mobility is a, complicated thing. A lot of us are at different stages of the disease, regardless of age, background, activity level. You know, I used a cane for a few years. I use a walker outside the house. But like having to think about every step you take is pretty exhausting. It's a a constant kind of dance with yourself, sometimes literally of how much do I want to push it today? It's going to be good for me mentally to push it more, but is it bad for me physically? So thats I'd say that's the long and short of it. It's just like being aware enough to realize that things are getting harder. That's the hardest thing for me.
4: Tony, do you feel like it's changed your personality in recent years? Yeah,
0: I think So that's such a good question because like, I've always been really outgoing and just like enjoy people. Even when you are in a very comfortable group setting of friends and family, that part of your brain, that's just like, you're going to be able to get out of this chair. That's scary. What's it going to look like when you try to get out of the chair? That stuff can't not affect your personality. Like it takes away the things that used to be a breeze mentally, not just physically.
4: Yep. Those are the things I'm alluding to with that because that's what I'm I'm working through right now, right? Because I feel like like it is altering my personality in a way because I was always the outgoing guy. I always loved engaging with people, getting up, going to stay high, engaging when there's something to participate in, right? And now now I feel like I have to be more reserved in those settings. If my personality really hasn't changed internally, I fear that people now don't know who I am. They don't know my real personality because I'm not able to be the person I always was. And mm-hmm. so those are some of the things I'm working with. Um, as far as mobility goes, I mean, I my wife is is patient sometimes. I think supportive is the word you were looking for earlier. Yeah. Um, we went to a niece's play last night and if there wasn't a crowd of people going from the parking lot into the middle school auditorium, I could have done it fine without assistance, without a cane. But at night, it's dark. Um, it's 40 degrees. My my body's not really functioning in 40 degrees. Yeah. And there's a lot of people moving in and out of that that sidewalk and and that corridor. So, you know, I've got my wife's hand right there helping me navigate in and out of that place. And at the end, you know, everybody rushes to greet her and greet the niece and, and congratulate her. And, and I'm, I'm good to hang out in my seat. I'm good yeah. to hang out on the side, right? I don't want to mess with the crowd. Absolutely. But, you know, those are just kind of things that I'm forced to do, even though I don't want to. And so those are kind of the trade-offs and the things I'm navigating each day. And each year, you're kind of taking on those new things, those trade-offs, mm-hmm. things you're willing to to go without because of you're being forced to.
0: It's it's also like, I don't know if you feel this way, but the responsibility that we put on ourselves to make other people feel comfortable, where for us, like mentally and physically, comfort is like what, like that's not even an option. But in like social settings, that's a, that's a great point. Like you do want to be upgrading those people most of the time if you if you like them. Sometimes it's a good excuse not to. I had friends from Cleveland here last month that I hadn't seen in a few years, and it's just like, yeah, you know, come say bye to me, I'm sitting on the couch i'm I'm down for the count for for a bit here, but you know the people close to you get it, but it, you still feel that responsibility for making other people feel comfortable, and that can be that can be tough
2: what you're describing is the need for more self focus that changes your interaction with other people so whether it's a change in personality or just that when you need to pay so much attention to moving around in space and amongst people you're not as available to connect with others and you need to make choices just for your own comfort and safety so the impact really broadens in that Mm -hmm. respect if it were just something physical and but it Mm -hmm. didn't impact your relationships Perhaps it would be a bit more tolerable, but kind of needing to explain to other people why your behavior or interaction with them has changed, and you know, most of us humans are not
4: really very good at understanding yeah, those kind of things. Absolutely,
0: <laughs> that has been the case,
4: certainly. And and again, I I would say that um, those close to me, the understanding is there, and that awkwardness is gone. The patience is there. The the acceptance. But, you know, occasionally there will be a new friend or a new scenario where we have to go into a new setting that I'm not familiar with. And the first thought is always, how many stairs do they have into their house? How far is the walk from their parking lot or from their driveway to their house? Is there a slope? Is there a grade, right? Will I have somebody with me who can help me navigate that? And there's been times when I've gone to people's homes and I said, can I park right at your garage and come in through your garage because I can't, I can't enter your home. And so, you know, usually there's, there's a more accessible avenue through the garage with less steps or a handrail or something like that. People are always understanding. We're, we're getting good at describing this, uh, the situation and just some of the things that, that we work through.
2: Um, one other thing that people who have not encountered something like 2i are not good at is describing the physical obstacles to get somewhere i remember um inquiring at a restaurant once if it's accessible you know getting there and they said sure it's accessible it only has three steps those blessed enough to be unaware of the kind of physical obstacles and the impact they have on people living with conditions like 2i often don't give the right information to help somebody prepare so um I wanted to get back to John, to your family who've been diagnosed with
4: 2I. What is that like? The five of us are on a text thread. We definitely share notes. It's quite active at times. We are involved at different levels with QRL, GMD, 2I Foundation, uh, some of the fundraising, some of the awareness, things like that. So we do communicate about that type of thing and, and are engaged with the studies that are happening in Irvine or Iowa or Locally, we are in four different states. And so we, we all don't have access to the same facilities. But when one of us does go and meet with a neurologist or a, a study or something like that, we and keep each other informed. So I, I do like that aspect of, of it.
2: That's helpful in it. How about you, Tony? You, you didn't grow up with other family members experiencing this. And what has been like for you? And have you gotten support?
0: I mean, 100% of the support comes from my wife, you know, with my family. It's kind of just like, let us know how you're doing. You know, that's where, you know, I wouldn't wish this upon them, but it could be helpful. It, you know, I think even if they were willing to like do some research and like have the understanding to me, it's the it's the two I group on Facebook. Basically, the only reason I go on Facebook uh, is to get that information and to have that sense of community. We do like quarterly calls with the Cure2i Foundation, and that's my time to just be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Other people are dealing with this. Otherwise, you know, I'm kind of a solo act and it's mentally not always the best place to be.
2: Yeah. So the Facebook group and Cure2i have really been places to go for support and connection with others.
0: I do my own research and I'm pretty good at the internet so I'll, I'll find it as well.
2: Uh, my last question really is how you both think about the future, what are your expectations and what are your hopes?
0: I'm looking at you, John. You got to start this one.
4: (laughs) What do I think about the future? You know, I do have hope. I've probably seen the most progression the last four or five years. And that's been hard to deal with. And it has forced me to maybe rethink things and maybe change the projection of where I thought I might be in 20 years. But at the same time, I have today and I have tomorrow and I have so many good things, right? And so I try to look outside of 2i and just realize, like, this is me. This is my life and I'm going to live it and I'm going to enjoy it. But when I bring 2i into that conversation, I I say, OK, This is a good time to be alive and and there's a lot of good things happening and the advances that, that are happening in the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry is getting sharp. And if I don't directly benefit from that in my life, I can be here and participate and do what I can now for somebody else behind me to benefit from it. Right. Hopefully it'll benefit me if so. I'll embrace it and I'll take any advantage that comes my way. But if I can contribute in any way to benefit 2i patients, you know, I'll, I'll do my part and contribute where I can.
2: Thank you, John. I, I have to say that the perspective of that extends from yourself to others that will come along, I really admire and appreciate that. How about you, Tony?
0: Um, I think cautiously optimistic most days but also trying to get to the place John's at where it's just like right now is right now. So make the most of it. Cause I was able to do that at other stages of this disease and the progression. It's just been exceptionally challenging the past couple of years. And part of that of course has been, been a global pandemic, but I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that good things are coming. I am patiently waiting uh, for the drug trial here in Irvine to kick up again Relatively optimistic to where it's like, well, a year from now, maybe it'll be easier to get out of a chair and that will open up more things I can do. I just kind of want to figure out how to do those things now. Uh, and that's possible, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work for sure.
2: So these past years have been um, difficult and there's been more progression for both of you that you have been in common. And there is no future if you don't have today and tomorrow and focusing on what's going on right now. So I really thank you for. Sharing so much of your lives and experience. This has been incredibly informative and helpful to us. I wish you well, and I'll be thinking of the two of you and the community of people living with 2i, hoping that the future becomes brighter for all of you.
4: Thank you, David. This is a great opportunity, and I'm glad to participate and contribute. Uh, definitely, uh, thank you.
1: What an amazing and remarkable experience that both of these men have had. I was especially touched by how their physical challenges had a tremendous impact on their personalities. Both John and Tony mentioned that they were more isolated, that they had to constantly be uh, planning every step and not just anticipating their needs, but also anticipating the needs of others so that others didn't feel uncomfortable with their disease and their challenges. It was interesting how um, every movement, They had to think whether that activity was was worth their effort.
2: I think it was really interesting as they described how their LGMD2I has continued to progress and things have really changed for them in their adulthood. I guess I'd also point out that they both made really good adaptations in their lives and their careers and both have found a way to continue earning a living. Although, you know, sadly, Tony is no longer a working musician. He's stayed in the same industry They were also just very great communicators, interesting to listen to. We have so much to learn from people like them.
1: We certainly do, and and even their hope and optimism for the future, despite living with a really challenging and progressive condition.
2: Sometimes When we have conversations like this, I just want to go on and on, and I feel like I'd love to call them back and talk some more about how they have managed over the years and how they'll continue to uh, manage, adapt, and strengthen their resilience living with LGMD2I.
1: Thank you, David. Thank you, Dr. Sproul, and a very special thanks to John and Tony for sharing their journeys with us. For more information on LGMD2I, please click on pipeline at bridgebio.com. Special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks, and thank you for listening to On Rare. If you like today's podcast, we'd appreciate your support by reviewing, rating, and most of all, subscribing. I'm Mandy Rorick. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare.